Annie Dillard once said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. We often define our lives by some of the biggest events that happen in our lives. Maybe it's the day you got married. Maybe it was the day you had your first child. Maybe it was the day you went to college. Maybe it was the day you went to the military. Maybe it was some tragedy in your life, a death in the family, a difficult diagnosis, disaster struck your home. I think we can often see this in uh, biographies of presidents, right? The authors are always sure to talk about wars and economic crises and court cases and assassination attempts, but they don't talk about their habits, their lifelong practices, what they did day in and day out. And while big events can change the direction of our lives, they aren't always representative of how we spend our lives. For example, you might spend more time as a husband than the time you were at the wedding ceremony. You spend more time as a mom than the time you labored in the birth of your child. You spend more time in class than you do moving to college because life isn't defined necessarily by the biggest events. It's how we spend our everyday. If you took out your phone right now and went to settings and clicked on screen time, the little option there, you would see that you spend maybe hours every single day looking at your cell phone. You could add up how long you're looking at your laptop at work or your TV at home. You could add up uh, just your work hours in general. You could add time with kids and you could figure out pretty quickly how you spend your days because how we spend most of our days is doing pretty repetitive things. We're trying to put food on the table, entertain ourselves, raise our kids, and do our jobs. And our culture teaches us that this is very bad news. Things don't have to be this way. Your life doesn't have to be as boring as it is. It's up to you to make your life exciting. And this message comes through commercials and social media and ads and TV and movies You see someone who's much more attractive than you with something you can't afford, doing something that seems like a lot more fun than you've ever had, and it's designed to make you believe that your life is boring, that you need to make your life more exciting, maybe as exciting as what you see on the screen. And I think this is why we feel so pressured to take pictures of all of the interesting things in our lives and post them because we want to impress others. We want to show others just how exciting our life can really be. And it's why we feel jealous when all we see online is pictures of other people's exciting lives. And over time, I think this message breeds dissatisfaction in us. You start to resent your life. You wish you had a different spouse or job or group of friends or church, whatever it is. And and there are two kind of reactions that I think are really common. One is, I'm going to make every single day of my life exciting. You resist the mundane aspects of life. You're going to get a job that you love every single day when you wake up Monday to Friday. You're going to find a spouse with whom you can have unending romance. And through willpower and probably a ton of money, you will resist the boredom and repetition of life. You will make it exciting, whether it wants to be or not. I think the other reaction we can sometimes have is despair. You accept that life has this repetitive aspect to it, and you dread it. You mope around, wishing for a different life. Flawless children, a thrilling job the perfect church. 
But in the end, you actually don't do much about it, and you just let this resentment fester in you. But I don't think those are the only two ways to approach our day-to-day lives. I think most of us know that we do a lot of repetitive things. We wake up and eat and punch a clock and watch shows and scroll and post and email and text and put the kids to bed and go to sleep and repeat life the next day. And every once in a while, there are a big, big events. There are weddings and funerals and birthdays and vacations. And what we think we should do is resist that fact with this unending pursuit of excitement or we despair that life is so repetitive or what I think we should do is follow a better way. Is there a better way to approach my day-to-day life? And I think we can find the answer to this question. The answer, yes, in a book called Ruth. This next series that we're starting today for the next four weeks is all about the story of a woman named Ruth. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, it's in the Old Testament right after the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a chaotic time in the life of Israel. Israel didn't have a king, and so everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. It was kind of anarchy in Israel. And God would send these judges. They were often military leaders who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they would try and kind of do a course correction for uh, God's, God's people, but it didn't really work. The people of Israel still spiraled out of control, and the story of Judges gets, keeps getting worse and worse and worse until finally, in this last chapter of Judges, it is this R-rated story of violence and abuse against women. And then, the very next book in the Bible, the very next story is the story of Ruth. And the, the book of Ruth begins with, in the days when the Judges ruled. So, While women were being abused in the lawless anarchy of Israel, there's this alternative story happening alongside that evil. There's this story of these two women trying to find their way in the world and this righteous Israelite man stumbling his way into their story. But just because there's this alternative story doesn't mean there isn't tragedy. I mean, if you listened to this scripture reading we just heard, it's full of tragedy. The, the, the story kicks off with a famine. So this Israelite father and, this, and his wife Naomi have to figure out what they're going to do. How are they going to get food? And so they go to this neighboring country called Moab. And it's not necessarily a friendly country just because it's next door. There's a lot of bad blood. There's a lot of bad history. We find out if you go back and read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that Moab didn't help Israel after they were freed from Egypt. You find out that one of the Moabite kings named Balak tried to curse Israel with a prophet named Balaam. You figure out that some Moabite women slept with some Israelite men, probably introduced them to pagan worship of God. So there has been a lot of military and moral battles between these countries. The hostility is so strong that in the Torah we read, no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. This Israelite family is headed into enemy territory, hoping, just praying to find some food. And then tragedy strikes again because Naomi's husband dies. And the family tries to move on. Naomi's two sons settle down. They get married to two Moabite women. And then tragedy strikes a third time. Ten years later, both of her sons die. This decade-long search for life and blessing outside of the promised land 
with all this bad news. And then, out of nowhere, they hear good news from Israel. The Lord has considered his people and given them food. So Naomi thinks, this is my last shot. This is the only option I have left. She packs up her bags, she gets ready to go, and she tells her daughter-in-laws, go back home. Do not come with me. Remember, there is no social security, there's no Medicaid, there's no health care, there's no support system, there's no police. These are poor Moabite widows. Their needs are urgent. And so Naomi does what I think is very kind and says, don't come back with me. I have nothing to give you. If they followed Naomi to Israel, they would be immigrants with a lot of bad blood between their two nations. They have no idea how that move would end up. And so there's this moment of decision. Will they stay or will they go with Naomi? And at first, both women, they weep and they say, we'll never, we're never going to leave your side. We're going to go with you. And Naomi just pushes past all those sentimental feelings. And she says, well, why? Why would you go with me? I have nothing to give you. Y'all have lost your husbands but you can remarry again. I can't even remarry. I can't give you sons. I have nothing to give and no alternative. This is my last option. Do not come with me. And one of her daughters-in-law listens to her. She thinks that's, that's a wise course of action, but we never hear anything else about Orpah after she leaves. We never know anything else about her, but we do hear a lot about this other daughter-in-law who says the famous words, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. She says to Naomi, do not press me to leave you. Do not tell me to turn back from following you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Now that strikes modern listeners like us as kind of a little bit odd, that she chooses both the people and their God, but this vow is one package deal. She chooses this widow, her homeland, her people, her God, and her grave. It's very easy to see that Ruth has gone way above and beyond what anyone, including Naomi, could have asked her. And so they go back. They go back to Israel, they take this journey all the way to Naomi's hometown, and the town's gossip mill gets running very quickly. The women see these two women return from Moab and they say, is this Naomi? It's not exactly clear what the motive is for this question. Maybe they can't believe she had the audacity to return after abandoning her people and going to the enemy country of Moab. Maybe they think she's a traitor for marrying her sons off to the evil, seductive Moabite women. But Naomi hears this gossip and she answers their question. She says, oh, don't call me Naomi anymore. You can call me Mara, which means bitter. I went away full with a husband and sons and I went to go get food to eat, but now I come home empty. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. So call me by my name. Now, when someone's name changes in the Bible, you usually think that their life afterwards is going to be very different, right? Abram and Sarai change to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob changes to Israel. Saul changes to Paul. Simon changes to Peter. Usually, their life is going to be very different after this, and maybe Naomi thinks that, and she thinks, okay, I know how my life is going to be from now on. 
I'm not going to be Mrs. Pleasant anymore. I am going to be Miss Bitter. I am going to passively change into a woman of despair. But I think that there are some amazing clues that shows that Naomi might be wrong about the way her story ends because God isn't the one who changes her name. And we're told that they return to Israel right when the barley harvest is beginning. What once was dead with famine is now alive with fertile soil and it is springtime. And Naomi says that she's come back empty-handed. She has nothing left, but that's actually not true because she came home accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Maybe she's not right about the rest of her story. Now, the big question in this series is going to be, how is God present in this story? Because it's not always abundantly clear. The book never depicts God speaking. The book never depicts God doing anything miraculous. There are, nobody walks on water. Nobody parts the Red Sea. There's, there's not miracles. No one heals the sick. There aren't supernatural plagues or judgment from God. It doesn't even seem like there are special or important people. There are no kings or queens or prophets or priests. There's no mention of the temple or sanctuaries or sacrifices. It's a very boring book. God is only spoken of in the third person, even when he is mentioned. Remember, Naomi hears a rumor that God has brought the land out of famine. She doesn't even pray directly to the Lord and address the Lord in the second person. She only invokes his name in a blessing. So how in the world is God present in the story? Why would anyone think that this book belongs in the Bible, which is a story full of miracles and God's mighty works and his salvation? I think that God is present in the very words that Ruth says to Naomi. Because you've got to look very carefully at what Ruth says. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And if you look at God's words throughout scripture, they actually sound very familiar when God is speaking to Israel. Because he will say over and over and over, I will be your God and you will be my people. He is make, God makes this statement to Israel as a statement of commitment. I will stay with you. I will be with you. I will be present to you. I am yours and you are mine. We belong together. That is why those famous words are actually said at wedding ceremonies. Because it's a statement of lifelong commitment. I will be with you. I will be present to you. God is present in those words, that commitment of day-to-day fidelity, which is why this new sermon series has the most straightforward title that has ever been used for a sermon series, God is present in our day-to-day lives. He is. And if you could remember one thing this week or the next four weeks, I would want you to walk home believing that God is present in your day-to-day life. Now, Annie Dillard is right when she says how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Ultimately, when you tally up all the ways you've spent your life, it's really what you do every single day that really counts. But it's gospel truth that God is present in your day-to-day life. 
Last week, we had our big Easter service, and so many people came back, and we talked about Christ's resurrection from death. I mean, it, when, whenever you leave an Easter service, you can just leave on this spiritual high. We proclaim that Jesus died and rose again, never to die again. And then things kind of reset back to normal. And sometimes normal can be disappointing. And we go back to our week in and week out kind of life. And, and now I just chose to look at the boring story of Ruth. How does that actually help us? It's because this book is close to our lives. This book is about mundane, normal, routine stuff. It's about getting married and having babies and putting food on the table. It's about death and life and widows and moms and dads. There is hardly another book in the Bible with as many daily human concerns as Ruth. And this is such good news for every single person in this room because it means that God is not detached from your life. He doesn't need you to be a VIP to be involved. He doesn't need spectacles or miracles to show that he's interested in your life. God loves you. Not the version of you that you curate online for future employers or friends you want to impress. You. God is present in your real life. God is interested in all of the plain and rote repetition of your life. God is there when you wash dishes and change diapers, and I've been doing a lot of that lately. It's sometimes hard to believe, but he is. He's there. He's present, and he's at work. If he's present in the life of Ruth, he's present in your life too. Um, I was talking to Ben Stewart, our worship minister, about this sermon And we had a really helpful conversation that kind of helped me with this last part of this sermon. Because I want to make sure and clarify and qualify that it is true that God is present in how we spend our days. He's present in our day-to-day lives. But that doesn't mean God blesses however we choose to spend our days. I've got a professor uh, and friend who begins his classes up at Abilene Christian with the question, what kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? And the students, he's told me, his students will say exactly what I would have said. They're like, I want to be kind and generous and thoughtful and self-sacrificial. I want to serve the poor and fight for justice and get married and have kids and be spiritually deep. And I want to have a great prayer life. And they kind of have this big list of very big goals, and, he's, and then he says, how do you spend your spare time in a day? And they say, Netflix. And I would have said the same thing, and it's really easy to kind of laugh or maybe point and make fun of that, but you just fill in that answer, your, how you spend your spare time in your day. And some of us do less than spiritual things in our spare time that we may not be as proud of. So just because God is present in our day-to-day lives doesn't mean he blesses how we choose to spend our day-to-day lives. The point of this sermon series is that God is not just for important people, for influential people who make history books. God is present in the life of Ruth, in the life of every single person in this room. Regardless of influence, regardless of power, regardless of status, he is present. And earlier I mentioned a better way 
to approach our day-to-day life. There are probably better words out there than these two, but I think they're really helpful in this discussion. And they're both so Christian. And the first is contentment. It is the hard work of accepting that life is not an unending string of pleasurable events. The only people who could possibly believe that are privileged and rich and protected from the real world. Contentment is this practice of accepting life as it is, not the way you wish it would be or the way commercials tell you you think it should be. Contentment is to say thank you for what you have because everything good you have is something you received from God. And the second way I think we can approach our day-to-day life a little bit better is through discipline, through putting away of some of our old bad habits and picking up new good habits. Discipline means putting down, binging a TV show and picking up the practice of fasting, putting down your phone and the infinite scroll of Twitter and reading God's word. It means putting away talk radio for a second and inviting some people over for dinner. It means putting away the news and going to visit the sick and isolated. It means putting away your laptop and work and email and spending time with your kids. Contentment and discipline. And I think you can see these two things in the life of Ruth. I mean, she makes a vow to spend the rest of her days caring Talk about discipline. How much discipline does it take to make that kind of vow and follow through on it? She resolves to be with Naomi and her God and her people and her land and by her bedside. Talk about contentment, accepting the difficulties of life. That's the good news of Ruth, and we're going to see it flesh out a little bit more as we go through the other three chapters, but This is the one thing that I want us to all walk away with. God is present. He is here today in your day-to-day life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sometimes drawn to this idea that you're far off, You don't really care all that much about what happens. Or maybe the idea that all the work you've done is in the past. That you may have done some incredible things a few thousand years ago, but you're not up to all that much in the present. We pray that your word would correct us that we would know your presence when we're in the car driving to work, when we're at home with our families, wherever we are, studying in a library, feeding our kids, going on vacation, wherever we are, you are there. You don't wait around for us to be important by the world's standards, successful by the world's standards, impressive by the world's standards, you are with us. You're present in our day-to-day lives. We thank you that you are not far off. This is holy and precious name. Amen.